Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. If you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. This summer, we will be having services on Sunday at 8.30, 9.45, and 11.15 a.m. We are located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. So the world is full of crap. It's just, it's just not doing what it was supposed to do. Now, before I get into all of that, I kind of wanted to start out by asking us a question to consider. Does anyone else get the sense that things aren't working the way they ought to? You know, I mean, you look around at uh, the news, and it's kind of scary news, right? It makes you kind of want to crawl up into a fetal position and um, just kind of make believe that uh, the world doesn't exist. With that kind of scary news, we end up uh, really starting to uh, look at the disorder and the confusion that is all around us. Now, go ahead and read the paper. Go ahead and watch some TV. Once you crawl out of the fetal position, you'll be able to recognize just how fast things around us seem to be disordered or seem to, to fail to thrive. So, for example, in our schools, uh, we see rampant cheating. Now, when I was growing up, there was cheating in schools because, you know, kids always cheat because, you know, you're going to cheat. You know, you didn't study well, you're not prepped. But nowadays, we hear very often of teachers and administrators who are cheating. Because if they cheat and their schools get higher rankings, they get more cash from the big pile of cash that's out there somehow. These are the same folks who we've actually entrusted our kids to. We, we've handed our kids over to say, hey, help us create the next citizens of this country. But, but that's now the example we give. In businesses, we find these multi-billion dollar, multinational corporations who are refusing to pay their people a livable wage. Piles of cash. They can't afford a livable wage. In government, we find people who are so hard-hearted that they squash the helpless. And then on the flip side, we see many of the helpless abusing the social safety net and taking advantage of it in a way that prevents those who really do need it to not get it. It doesn't matter what side of the issues you're, you're on here. It can drive one mad. We find employees who are stealing through their laziness, and we find managers who are so demanding that families are running around frantic and disconnected from each other. Whether it's school violence or suicides among the rich and the famous, is there not obviously something wrong, something broken at a really, truly fundamental level in our society? And then so what do Christians do? Well, Christians often get all bent out of shape and they start to whine about everything that they see that is wrong in the world and they become very angry at the world. Just check Facebook. We get this finger wagging, tongue 
clicking, holier-than-thou attitude that rumbles out of many churches and so-called Christians with a, with a sort of religious self-righteousness. Christian leaders don't help as they start to chime in in all the wrong ways without actually doing anything. And their hypocrisy actually mirrors or even exceeds the impotence of the society that they are so harshly judging. But it is into this very impotence and into this very darkness that we actually get to see the difference that Jesus makes. And it has been this way for 2,000 years. So let's open to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use one of the Bible apps or under the seats. We uh, have Bibles spread out. If you don't have one there, you, you're going to want to open it up so you can kind of follow along. This is uh, the Sermon on the Mount. If you need a, a Bible you can, and you don't have one, just raise your hand and the ushers will find you something or uh, we'll find you one. The Sermon on the Mount, and uh, that's kind of what we're, in, uh, what we're going to be looking at here this morning, just a few verses of it. And I was surprised, I'm going through my notes, and I was from, from like the past years, and I wasn't able to find a place where I actually taught on this passage, which was really shocking to me, because it's just such a, a famous and popular little passage, but uh, somehow it has escaped being, uh, being taught. So we're going to read the whole of it, and then we're going to kind of go through it phrase by phrase to understand a little bit more of what it's telling us. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. All right, so the first image we get here is salt. And this whole phrase, salt of the earth. We all know the idiom in English. Uh, this is actually where it comes from, the salt, where the salt of the earth. If you say, oh yeah, that person's there, the salt of the earth kind of a person, then we pretty much know what they're saying. These are good, quality, decent people. They're salt of the earth. That's what it means in English. But what did, what did Jesus mean when he used this phrase? To understand, we want to go back a little bit in history and try to figure out how salt was used in the ancient world. So one of its primary uses, for sure, is that of a preservative. Now, before refrigeration, you would need a way to take your crops and your food, your meat. You can't eat the whole cow, so you got to find a way to preserve the meat so that you could eat it later in the future. Salt was the great preservative of the day. It also has the additional benefit of making things more flavorful. So most of the people, the, the scholars who kind of talk about this passage will usually reference these two things. They will tell you that we are the preservative, so the world does not rot around us, and we are the little spice that adds a little God flavoring into the world. Now, Considering that's how salt really was used in the ancient world, that is certainly one of the ways to interpret this passage. Now, 
to really kind of think through it with a little bit more depth, we have to recognize that there are really different types of salt in the ancient world. There's sea salt, there's rock salt, there's these pit salt things. And many of these forms of salt actually aren't pure salt. So when you read this, how can the salt lose its saltiness? People are like, well, it can't. Once it loses its saltiness, it's because it's not there anymore. It's a stable compound. Jesus must not have known this. Not exactly true. The way it works is that in the ancient world, you would not have refined, purified salt, except unless you, in, unless you were talking only about sea salt. But if you're talking about regular salt in the ancient world, it would have been mixed with other kinds of chemical elements. And when the salt had leached out of those, of those mixtures, then whatever was left, the gypsum and some other types of sands and pebbles and things like that, would not be salty anymore. And you would not be able to use it for other salt related uses. Not only was salt showing up in various forms, it actually was used in a whole lot of different ways. That opens up for us a somewhat more intriguing possibility as an interpretation of this passage. Researchers have shown us that the ancient cultures, as diverse and spread out around the world as China and Russia and, yes, the Hebrews in the Middle East and many, many others, they used salt not merely as a culinary tool, but as an agricultural tool. This was new to me. Salt was used in arid places to help the soil retain moisture, to destroy weeds, it was also used to make stubborn soil that wasn't really yielding easier to till. I, I even read somewhere that, that if you had like grass that the cattle wouldn't eat, that your sheep wouldn't eat because it was just sort of nasty, that a little bit of salt would sweeten the, the, the grass and that your herds would actually start to eat. It was, it was a soil amendment. It was treating the soil. It was also used to make manure or crap more effective, which is, of course, an important thing for us to remember. Salt actually would keep manure from fermenting too quickly, which would make it useless as a fertilizer. And so if you were taking this manure and you were transporting it somewhere else, you would, you would coat it in salt. And then, in the process of preparing the manure for the field, you would mix the salt into it, adding the inherent fertilizing capability of salt to the manure, making it that much more effective. An article I had found stated it like this. They said, the insight is consistent with the knowledge that sodium chloride has been used as a fertilizer in all ages and in all countries for the purpose of promoting vegetation. I had no idea. That's really interesting to me. It's, it's not just an ancient technique. It's still used today. It's a modern farming innovation, if you can call it that, in many parts of the world. For instance, the Philippine Coconut Authority really exists. The Philippine Coconut Authority, they released a technology guide sheet for farmers entitled SALT, an effective and cheap fertilizer for high coconut productivity. It went through a study that showed that coconut farmers, that's funny to me, I don't know why, coconut farmers actually who, who used salt in their fertilizing had fields that were 125% more productive than the farmers who did not use salt. 
still recommending it today to farmers around the world. Now, as Westerners, we generally use salt to spice up our food. So when we hear a phrase like this, it kind of sounds like, well, you know, it's really nice. Go out there and sprinkle a little God in there, and, and everything will work out just nice for you. You're, the, you're the, the, the little sprinkle of salt that makes the otherwise decent meal more flavorful. You know, it makes your, your noodles just a pop a little bit more. And I can certainly understand why we would interpret the passage this way, because it is used that way. But imagine if you are in ancient Israel and you're listening to Jesus teach. What would you have heard him say? See, we take the word the earth and we kind of make it into the world because it parallels with the light of the world in the next section. But that word for earth can just as readily be translated as soil. I think that's really what he's saying. I think the Israelites would have heard him say, you are the fertilizer of the soil. That's how the idiom would have run for him. And of course, it wouldn't even have been an idiom. They all would have known exactly what he was talking about. They would have heard him say, you are the manure of the earth. So wear that for a while and think it through. But he meant it in a good way. In fact, he meant it in the best possible way. You're not simply a little dash of taste here and there. You're in the ground first and foremost to produce and since followers of Christ are already spread out over all the face of the planet, the manure is already in place. Now we just need to get to doing what we were meant to do. This interpretation also helps us explain the somewhat puzzling version of this passage that's found in Luke's gospel. After talking about how salt loses its saltiness, Luke says this, what really does seem quite bizarre to me. It is fit neither for the soil. This is Luke 14. It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. And I read this and I hear, wait a second, wait. It's, it's not good for the soil. It's not good for the manure pile. You have to throw it out. It sounds like you said the same thing three different ways to me. Until you recognize the fertilizing capabilities of salt. Now it makes perfect sense. It's not good for the soil and it's not good for the manure pile. Now you actually have to throw it out because it's useless. It can't be used as a, as a fertilizer in its own right, and it can't be used to enhance the manure. It's just, just chuck it. It's no longer good for anything. So now let's think that through a little bit. Where do you need fertilizer? You know, you think, oh, well, you put it in the gardens. Yes, but not really in the garden so much as, as in the places that won't thrive. When you've got those bad patches of lawn and they're just not growing, when you've got those gardens that are, this year it just wasn't so good and you go and you talk to the experts and they go, well, did you fertilize? Did you add the manure? Did you get it in there? Did you work it through the soil at the beginning of the season? If you're a farmer and you have fields that are unproductive or you want to increase at 125-fold, the answer is always the same. Fertilize it. In the places where it refuses to grow, it needs the accelerant of fertilizer. For us then, as followers of Christ, whenever, wherever, culture or society or businesses or governments or civic associations or families or individuals fail to grow, then Christians are called in to do the work of fertilizing, 
not to whine and cripe and complain and to post and to, but to press into the barren places. To be useful as a fertilizer, you need to be worked into the dry and hard and unproductive soil. The very places that many Christians refuse to go. But we can't stay in our ivory towers or our cloistered churches and be the crap that the world needs. We can't. It has to be liberally sprinkled into the barren places that fail to thrive. The second image he gives us is light, the light of the world. And there are really two versions of it that he gives us here. Matthew 5, 14, chapter 5, verse 14. He says, you're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. So the city on a hill motif. Lamp in the room in 5:15. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And I don't want to develop this whole thought too much because I want to talk about some other stuff. But... Just, we have to kind of remember this, this is the ancient world again. So this is pre-Edison. And I don't know that most of us have ever really experienced this kind of darkness. You could be out in parts of the world, even though it's getting harder and harder to find any part of our world where you can still do this. And you could be out in the, in the middle of, you know, between two towns and put your hand in front of your face at night and not see it. That's how dark things got before Edison lit the whole place up, before we had ambient light kind of refracting and reflecting off of the, the atmosphere and, and spreading out hundreds and hundreds of miles. We're talking about a pitch blackness. And that would be inside your homes, and that would be when you're traveling from one city to another that could be really far away. This is why darkness became such a potent symbol for evil, uh, even a mythic thing that exists today in our psyche. It's such a part hardwired into humanity and even into kids, which, which it doesn't even make much sense today because we don't really have, have darkness like this. But it's so hardwired into us because of how dark the world really could get. It became a, a, the personification even of evil. And so that even a touch of light could dispel the darkness and press it back and provide hope and confidence to the people that desperately need it. If you're a traveler between cities and way off in the distance after traveling in the near pitch black, you get to see your city lit up on a hill. You know that all is not lost. It's just beautiful imagery. Anyway, they both capture the same idea that when life is dark, that we actually are the light that leads others to Christ. But these, both of these themes really combine to teach us an important lesson here from the Sermon on the Mount, that our good works that our good lives are actually meant to make a difference in this world. He so much as says it in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now this is how it works. We're not talking about earning your salvation here, being a good person to try to get your way into heaven. That doesn't work. The Bible is very clear about that. If you haven't heard that or don't understand that, Please talk to us afterwards. But the Bible never says that good people go to heaven. In fact, quite the contrary. It says none of us are good enough to go to heaven. So what are we talking about here, these good works? The way the scriptures paint the picture is like this. A, a person comes to trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And they believe that that is the moment they receive the gift of eternal life. It's given to them as a gift, not because they've deserved it, not because they've earned it or anything like that, but because of a gift, because they have trusted, they had faith in Christ. 
But because of the power of Jesus, the death, his burial, his resurrection, and because he gave us the Holy Spirit, all his promises from the scriptures, that we now have the ability to live life in a totally different way. So Jesus is actually coming up alongside us and he's saying, listen, you want to know the difference that Jesus makes? He makes a difference in you. It's the people that make a difference because a difference has been made in them. And if you're a person of the kingdom of God, then Jesus will make a difference in you so that you can be a difference maker to them. And this is so incredibly powerful to see who we were meant to be in this world and what we are supposed to do in this world. You know, we often think about, like, like you know, we go to heaven, you know, it's a get out of jail, we follow Jesus, it's a get out of, a get out of hell free card. That's salvation. We talk about salvation. That's what we often talk about. But salvation is so much more than that. It's the promise of a transformed life so that you can actually be a catalytic agent in this world to make a difference. I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, I want to make a difference. Go ahead and turn to the person next to you and tell them, I want to make a difference. Yes. Turn to the person on your other side and say, the world needs you to make a difference. Go ahead, you tell them. The world needs you to make a difference. We're difference makers in the name of Jesus. And as followers of Christ, we're told, listen, you're a follower of Christ, we don't get to rob our employers. We're supposed to be the first to help someone in need. We are the last to respond with a punishing comment. We make honesty a discipline of our lives, regardless of what it costs us. We refuse to laugh at coarse humor. We steer our eyes away from exploitive and sexualized TV and entertainment. We're both in the same mysterious way, meek but bold in this world. These are just a few of the things the scriptures point out is the ways that we can live within the transformed power of the kingdom of God. We get to fight for equality between men and women as God designed it. We defend the unborn who can't fight for themselves. We work for social justice. We protect the foreigners who are in our midst and we treat them and their children with compassion. We create just systems. And we demand fair courts. And we vote for honest politicians. And we care for the weakest and the most vulnerable of society. We treat the generation that went ahead of us, our elders, with the respect that they are due. And our lives will attract the attention of those who are far from God as we continue to be refined in this process and live by these kinds of kingdom principles and so much more. One of the scholars I was reading, Don Carson, he said it like this, prison reform, medical care, trade unions, abolition of slavery and child labor, establishment of orphanages, reform of the penal code. In all these areas, the followers of Jesus spearheaded the drive for righteousness. The darkness was alleviated. And this, I submit, has always been the pattern when professing Christians have been less concerned with personal prestige and more concerned with the norms of the kingdom. But he goes on to warn us. He says, Christians have lost this vision of witness 
and are slow to return to it. But in better days and other lands, the faithful and divinely empowered proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ so transformed men that they in turn became the light of the world. Do people want your life? Do people want your life? And I'm not talking about your money or your good looks or your professional success. I mean, all of that will be meaningless in the end. When we are dead and our bodies are being eaten by worms, you can rest assured that your grandchildren's children will not even remember all of the great achievements and accomplishments that you have done in this life. That's not what I'm talking about. Do they want your real life, your soul life, the eternal part of you? I could ask it another way. Does your life inspire others to follow Jesus? After encountering you, will they be compelled to love God just a little bit more? To seek his beauty and his splendor? And if not, why? What is holding you back from giving yourself more fully and completely to this kind of a savior? and to this kind of a mission in the world? What series of decisions have you made throughout your life that have caused you to fail to thrive in your own way, which prevents you from helping those who need it when they fail to thrive? Why is there darkness that inhabits your space? Why, is it, why does your life seem more foreboding than it might otherwise if we continued to trust in our Savior to transform us? Because you can be transformed by trust in Jesus so that you will make a difference in the world, so that you will be able to press into the barren and the lifeless and the darkness and you can fertilize it and you can, you can help it grow so that God's beauty might be made more fully known to the world. I'm going to ask the band to come up, and they're going to lead us in a song as we prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table. And uh, as they do that, I just want to pray for us, that God would make this more and more real of us. Would you guys stand as we pray? Father, what I'm, what I'm asking is that you would meet each person here just where they need it. I know that Everyone here, Father, they come from all different places and all different backgrounds, and some are, are feeling this great trajectory, and others are feeling beaten down, and they feel like they've continued to fail and disappoint and let you down, and they feel like their lives are such a wreck that they can, they can barely keep it together, never mind help become the salt and light that the world needs. But Father, you have promised to do this work in us through the power of Jesus, You've forgiven us of our sins and you've called us your children and you love us and you adore us. I pray that you would meet each person where they need to, to meet you. Woo them, Lord. Draw them into your presence, into your forgiveness so that we might live our lives in the fullness of that, that power that has the ability to transform this world for good, to bring the kingdom of God here more fully. Amen.